Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Christopher Ward is a songwriter and author who currently splits his time between Los Angeles and Toronto. Well known for writing the hit single Black Velvet by Alana Miles, Ward bears the distinction of being one of the first ever Canadian on-air personalities when Much Music launched on August 31st, 1984. Here's what that television debut sounded like. Tonight, live from coast to coast... The launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel. The nation's music station, Much Music. Let's get on with it here. All right. All right. Heck of a way to start a rock and roll show. Yeah, that's a little bit of a snappy opening, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm J.D. Roberts. I'm Christopher Ward. And what we have for you to kick the whole thing off is the first time that music and picture were ever synced. This is from 1922, and Ubi Blake, this is Snappy Song on on Much Music. Music. Much music went on to alter the course of live broadcasting and music media for decades, and Ward was an active participant in its early, heady, experimental, and chaotic early days. He's chronicled the experience in a compelling new oral history book called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the Nation's Music Station, which features commentary from musicians, hosts, producers, crew members, and many other first-hand witnesses to the weirdness. Is This Live was published by Random House Canada and is out now, so Christopher and I recently met at his publisher's office in downtown Toronto to discuss how much music got started, how and why it became beloved and influential, its rawness and prescience for interactive content and social media, his book, obviously, and much more. So here now is myself and Christopher Ward discussing his new book, Is This Live?, Inside the wild early years of much music, the nation's music station. Christopher, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. I want to thank you for making time. And I also, I was thinking about this as I was walking up this building. We're a block away from CBC. We're a few blocks down from... I guess it's still the Much Building. Where I'm a little confused about the status of what goes on in that building. Do you know what happens at 299 Queen Street? A lot of things go on in that building at 299 Queen. Um, I mean, it was a full flashback for me. I did some TV shows. There was one uh, called The Social. Yeah. And it was in the same space where we used to work. So I, I had like a full body flashback on that show. Yeah. Just I'm in there looking around and going... Oh, I remember when this happened here and this happened there. And then, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so's desk. And, you know. But it's like a multi-purpose, multimedia. Like at the time that you were there, it was much and City TV pretty much, right? Yes. And then eventually much more music came. But oh, it yeah, was, right. yeah, it yeah. was much and City. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And now it's like a bunch of stuff, isn't it? Like a bunch of little, net, like Bell it's Media. It's an empire of ish. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Bell Media hub for That's exactly what it shows. is, yeah. yeah. This area, like, it's strange to me, like, I've, I used to work in this area as well, and it's changing a lot, and it continues to change. What, for you, are the most significant markers of change in this area? And within that, why is this CBC, Much Music, 
Is there anything about this real estate that that uh, connotes broadcasting, or is that just a coincidence? Well, it's funny that you would ask. I, I'd never thought about it before, but I, I, I know that uh, traditionally sort of like-minded businesses tend to cluster. Yeah. It's like you'll have five car dealers all in a row, right? Or here's where the music stores are. Yeah, right, exactly. Like that. Yeah. So maybe it's that. I mean, I... I can only imagine it's where they got the space they wanted and and they wanted to be in downtown. I mean, think of how lucky we are in this city to have such a livable uh, downtown core where you can walk and feel safe at night, where there's stuff going on, there's restaurants open late. And I mean, I spent a lot of time in L.A. and it's like a little bunch, you know, group of kind of small communities hooked up by freeways and it it closes at 10. Yeah, right. Yeah, and this, this is a vibrant city. It is, it is, but it is changing. No more, more so than the downtown core, I think. I love it. You do? Yeah. Okay, Are you, and you're still sort of here? I'm here a lot, yeah. Yeah, okay. Splitting your time between here and L.A. Yeah, I mean, friends, family, work, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, what are you actually doing these days? Isn't writing a book enough? <laughs> what, do you mean, I what am I doing? <laughs> That's true. You're an author. You're a, you're a seasoned uh, author. You're a novelist as well, and uh, you write you write books. Is that your deal now? Well, I'm I'm an author in in the sense that the the guy that 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 wrote I'm too sexy for my shirt is a composer. <laughs> no, no, you're better than I think you're better than that guy. This, really? Well, this book is amazing. I'm this, going to the bank with that. <laughs> this book is this live is is it's wonderful, and I we should thank you. I, it really is. It it brings back a lot of memories for me. It's a lot of insight for for me for stuff I didn't know about. Obviously, uh, what prompted you to write this book at this point in your life? Well, I, I kept all the connections. I, a lot of my friends that I worked with 25 years ago are still my friends. And um, we get together, and usually at some point in, in the evening, we start talking about, oh, I remember that time that so-and-so uh-huh. you know, fell off his desk when he was asleep and he's supposed to be on air. It's like, ah, oh, you know, all the wacky stories come out. And it just, there came a point where I thought, you know, somebody needs to get all this stuff down. Right and chronicle it and and that's sort of my instinct as to be a chronicler ask my daughter with all the photographs that were taken of her you know it's <laughs> so sure. um you know i i started in those conversations literally putting my phone in the middle of the table and switching on record and sort of con- simultaneously with that i um i got access to the archives in the building at 299 queen Actually, that's one of the things that goes on there. It's a fantastic archive. And they graciously gave me permission to begin screening uh, tapes from back in the right, day. Right, Because you, I, I believe it's you, or Erica M. in the book mentions that she has no tape. She has no tape of her <laughs> existence at much. Did you have much of, of your own footage at all? Very little. Right. And I think for the same reason that Erica didn't, is that we were so concerned with what was coming the next day. Yeah that there wasn't really time to sort of sit back and go, well, wasn't that a fine interview? I think I'll go get a copy of that one and watch it tonight with the kids, you know? <laughs> no, you're just on to the next. But at the same time, I mean, it must be, I mean, an exercise like this one, writing this book, you get to revisit like a nice conversation with George Harrison that you had yeah. where he commends you about the conversation. I mean, to me, maybe that's just me and my own narcissism, <laughs> but if that had happened, I'd revisit it for weeks. I'd just be like, oh, It'd give me a buzz, you know? I'd want to listen well, to it and watch it again and I again. I did revisit that one a little bit, only because we made a special based on that interview and some other materials. Okay. So we kind of exploited the interview. Aside from it just going live for an hour, right. we, we did make something out of it. So I did actually in that case, but that's a rare exception. You're a forward-thinking person. This, is, <laughs> this kind of reflection is not something you do often. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia is a little sticky. It's, uh, sure. Uh, a, a guilty pleasure, I suppose. But I had to get past it being a pure exercise in nostalgia. And the way that I did that was I, I came to the realization that it's a very different kind of a project doing nonfiction. I'd never done this before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And taking all of those pieces, those bits and pieces, and all those elements that were there, you know, all the stories and all the photographs and all this, the interviews that were, you know, on tape and weaving them together with a narrative, taking all those voices and blending them into one. And then, as a sort of second layer, going out and doing interviews with all of the participants yeah. 25 
to 30 years later, including all the artists, all the VJs, management, label people, camera operators, everybody, uh, it was a real challenge, and it was a, a present day challenge for me. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it looks like it's daunting, and you've got a lot of amazing voices to participate in this book, which is which is commendable. You mentioned that you would have these late-night discussions with your colleagues about yeah. the old days. Was there any thought towards clarifying the record? Were there things you wanted to get out there that maybe there were misconceptions about much that you thought maybe uh, the public would benefit from from your clarification? Uh, no, I'm not that noble. I, I really... <laughs> I it never occurred to me that I had to fix anything. <laughs> I mean, in, invariably, there were disagreements, like, you know, conflicting recollections. Right, memories, sure. That I had to deal with in right. terms of how do I resolve this. So I, I always tried to take the approach of when in doubt, print the legend. Right. So. Well, I mean, what I know, what I know of your biography or what I knew before reading the book is that you are a singer song, or rather a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among your greatest hits was Black Velvet by Alana Miles. Yeah. And I knew it from, as the guy on Much that I grew up right. watching on TV, but I didn't really know about your comedy background. I mean, I saw flourishes of it in my record like I was like oh yeah the fromage stuff like I, there was right. there was some satiric we do thing. call that comedy <laughs> <laughs> you had this character fromage for people who don't remember was this it was an annual special was yeah, it yeah it was a new year's thing new year's thing and you would look at the cheesiest videos of the year and you played the videos and the hideos and as, the hi- as we <laughs> like to refer to them <laughs> and your character was uh, Charles de Camembert <laughs> The cheesiest BJ of them all. Well, no, no doubt. No. <laughs> Proudly so, I yes. might add. Yeah. Yes, but what, so what I was going to say is I didn't realize you had this background in comedy. You, you were in the Second City troupe. I was. Um, that was the touring company. But, I mean, that was kind of like a little side project for me when my uh, career as a uh, songwriter and recording artist hit a giant brick wall in... Uh, Kelowna. <laughs> well, a lot, a lot of artists hit brick walls in Kelowna. <laughs> I sure did. Uh, yeah, everyone So does. I came back to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life and ended up going to the Second City uh, workshop classes. Right. And to my surprise, they said, oh, do you want to audition for the company? And I thought, well, why not, you know? And then the, even more to my surprise, they gave me the gig. And even more to my surprise, they hired me over Mike Myers. Right. That falls into the what were they thinking <laughs> department, does it not? Well, maybe. You got some years on Mike? Were you, did you have more experience? He, you know what? It, and I think it actually did come down to that. That's yeah. a, I think that's a good take on it, which was that I, as, as being older, I was able to play a broader range of, of roles in an right. improvisational situation. But of course, Mike was you know one of the most brilliant sure improvisers of all time so <laughs> anyway that's where he and i became friends was so in the, the company in your experience at second city were you primarily writing were you primarily improvising oh it was entirely improvisational entirely yeah okay yeah there was no I, writing no because in the touring company what they do is they you get the hand-me-down scenes from the main stage company oh all the greatest hits and then you do them as a show that's what people pay to come and see. Um, and it's usually at a resort somewhere, like in Blue Mountain or something like that. Oh, okay. And then at the end, you take suggestions from the audience, and then you start you know, developing improv from oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. So did it, how did that experience help you in suddenly falling into this job of being a VJ on live TV from, I guess the, your first foray was, was it the midnight to 6 a.m. slot? Is that the first yeah, time? that's true. On City Limits, was it? or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so you were midnight to 6 a.m. You know your history, Vish. Well, I, you have a book. It's helpful. It's in, <laughs> it's in my head. It's fresh in my head. So midnight to 6 a.m., you're on City Limits, which is a, a, a new, I, I shouldn't describe it. You described this show to people. It was on City TV, right? Well, in answer to the first part of your question, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah. the, <laughs> the improvisational aspect was um, hugely important. Um you know, just to get your footing on a stage, or, or in this case, in what resembled a TV studio, right? Without any script and without any real props and no established dialogue or anything else, and and just go. And that was one of the pitches that John Martin gave me when he hired me. He, you know, he he wanted me for this all night show, and I I had just left Second City. In fact, he came down to see my last show. That's when right. I got, when yeah. I got the pie in the face, and, right? And he, and the he said, look, I've got something for you. And when I went to see him, you know, I was 
gung-ho to be developing Alana's career and to be working on my own music and everything else. And he, he offered me a TV show. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to do a TV That's show. That's right. You were reticent. I remember this. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, yeah. and, and he said, well, you need the money, don't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, ah, you can do anything you want. And I thought, wow. <laughs> so I did actually think about it for a couple of days and then, of course, decided maybe it was a good idea. So you, you, the improvisation, I think, among the things it teaches you is to uh, handle your fear, your fear of the unknown. Is that fair? I mean, you're dealing with a lot of moving parts all of a sudden with this VJ gig that you've just taken on. I assume being able to get to a comfort zone when things feel like they're going awry is a useful tool. Yes. And in Second City, of course, in the improv things go awry every single night and that's part of the charm of it and I think that's why people like improv because they want to see how you're going to pull yourself out of the soup right it's like an adventure yeah but they like seeing you mess up they 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 go okay how's he going to get out of this one (laughs) I was never a great improviser I did work with people like Deborah McGrath and uh, Ron James Mm -hmm. and 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 Mike of course people who were just phenomenal uh, improvisers, but I did learn some things that I was able to use in in television, and um, part of the adaptation for doing um, City Limits and then much was just the chaos that we yeah. operated within. There was no, as you as you know, there was no distinct studio space. There wasn't like a set or a place where you would go to do interviews or anything yeah. else. It was just this morass of gear and bodies and cameras and desks and phones constantly ringing. And uh, it was, okay, how do you cope with that? It's, it's like if you had to do a show from the middle of a construction site. And, and that, that's what I grew up watching on Much. And yeah. I think I just took it for granted that it was some kind of revolutionary act on some level. I mean, uh, from what I recall... That model of the set being the studio, essentially, right. the, the people working behind you, and in some cases, those people behind you ended up on the air. Erica M., Master T. <laughs> it's so true. Ray, like, there's so many people. Yeah, just, just get, yeah. get him on air. Get her on air. Uh, yeah. That, and often, I mean, in times, it wasn't even people that had an ambition to be on air. That's what Simon Evans will tell you. Yeah, yeah. He, he told me the story. He said, literally, like, three VJs had left in succession, and I guess I was one of them. And he said, so they decided they would put crew members on, like, VJ for a day. Yeah, that's right. I remember. I actually remember that. I remember liking Simon. Your, your description of Simon, uh, for those who don't remember, Simon Evans eventually became the host of The Wedge. That's right. And he had this very... He seemed disgruntled. He seemed <laughs> to have this demeanor where he didn't seem happy. He was malcontent, and he seemed to. And I enjoyed it. I, I liked of it. I, I, it appealed to me as a, in kind of a. I remember. I can't recall what point in, in Letterman's trajectory it was, but I was a big Letterman fan. Yeah. So any anyone who came across slightly misanthropic, like yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. And so <laughs> he just seemed like a reluctant. He totally seemed reluctant. And then the other side of it was like Rick. The Temp. Rick the Temp, who was, seemed very eager, and I was like, what? <laughs> What's yeah, going loveliest on? Loveliest guy in the world. Yeah, he seems well, Simon sweet. is a good friend, so I, I'm glad to hear your take on, <laughs> on him. He, he told me a story, which I'd never heard before, of when he did go on air for the first time. Uh, Stuart Copeland was his That's first right. interview on his first show. And um, I guess there was a board meeting upstairs in, in Moses' oh, office, right. <laughs> and, and John Martin, his people were all sitting around. And of course, you know, they'd have much on in the yeah. background. And I guess they all looked up at some moment that Simon was just doing something really stupid. And uh, Moses went, yeah, see that guy? That's someone you should never have on television. That's why we've got him on television. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I want to get at. I love that. It's, it's an amazing story. And I think that the philosophy of, and we, we need to talk about these guys, Moses and John <laughs> Martin, because we know Moses a little bit. Uh, yeah. Canadians know Moses as this. Well, I hope that people listening around the world know which Moses we're talking about. <laughs> which Moses are we talking about? Moses Neimer. Moses Neimer. So Moses is a media guy, and he was, he was basically, this was his brainchild, right? He applied for the licenses. He wanted to do this music station. Yeah. And John Martin, who you've alluded to a, a few times now, was a guy who knew music. Like, he mm-hmm. just was a music head, right? Like, he just loved music. Yes, yes. And they didn't get along. 
Chalk and cheese, I think, was how Denise described it. <laughs> yes. So talk about those two men and talk about the, I guess we've kind of skirted around the inception of, of much and your involvement at City Limits, which sounds totally happenstance. And basically from that, you moved to much eventually, right? Yeah. Well, the idea of Limits was set up, I think, as a, a sort of a prototype right. for much. It was the, well, if we get the license yeah, you needed a to broadcast do the music license. channel. Yeah. This will show them what we're thinking about doing. Right. But they also had the new music on the air. Which was an amazing show. From 1979. Yeah. And so this was in 83. Right. And John Martin had been the um, producer of the new music. So that's where he and Moses established their relationship, detente, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Sure. They were two radically different personalities, um, but there was... One area of commonality, and that is that they really loved when things happened in an unplanned, unformatted, unstructured way. Right. And John was just one of those guys that would do anything to stir the pot, to get you going, to get you off the mark, to make you do something in a way you'd never done it before. They're both kind of divisive figures. I mean, in the book, I get the sense that they both were... Well, certainly John was loved, but also could drive people nuts. Oh, well, I, again, I think it was a Jeannie Becker who said that she loved this man, and simultaneously he was the most infuriating person she'd ever known. Right. Because is, he, is that hard to imagine those two notions no, together can, in one person? I, I can see that. <laughs> you got a few of those in your life? I do. <laughs> I do. It's not, that, it's not that unusual. I think by the sounds of it, my take on... What John did is that he brought out the best in you, and he also uh, encouraged you to improvise and accept the fact that this was fleeting. Because I think sometimes when you get caught up in any media, you get uh, hooked on the fact that it's being recorded or that it's uh, that you maybe you can fix it. And this freeform TV that you guys were doing, like you had to let it go. You had to come back the next day and just, if it didn't go well... Try it again. There was no fix it in the mix. That's for right. Us. Right. That wasn't even part of the thinking. Right. It was all live all the time. Right. And this, so, and I, sorry, I'm kind of all over the place, but the city TV setup, which was like the news division. Right. And that, that was Moses as well, right? Yes. And I, I think what he did there was revolutionary. He, he sort of freed up the on air people from they're very stationary. That's right. They weren't um, at desks. Little, little boxes yeah. that they were in with the phones, you know? Right. And uh, I I mean, I don't, I can't, you know, uh, testify to the actual accuracy of this, but in my impression is that he was the first to do that. Yeah. The first to sort of open that up, create that sort of movement within the, um, within the news space. Yeah. But also, he'd already done it at much. Oh, sorry, much was... Oh, it was much prior to... Prior to oh. uh, City Pulse and... Okay, I didn't realize back that. in the day, the old building, City Pulse was, again, pretty conventional in terms of structure. Uh, oh, it's like a structure. St- more of a stayed news... As I remember it. Right, okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to con- that's why I started there, because I thought mm-hmm. he'd had City Pulse going in this vaguely freeform... It was a news right. network. It wasn't much. But I thought it started there and he was applying it to much, but you're saying it was the opposite. Vish, I think it was. Okay. But... <laughs> I was going to say, don't quote me, but then I have this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but quote everything you say. So this, so this again, this ties into the fact that you come from this improvisational world, and they are fully embracing this free form, this yeah. notion of like nothing has to be a certain way. That had to be liberating, but probably also frightening for some people. Yeah. Some people had sort of adapted to it better than others. Some to, took to it like, you know, a fish in water. I mean, yeah. Steve. Steve Anthony. Steve just lived and died by the sword. <laughs> yeah. Minute to minute. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know if he knew what was going on in Steve's head from one moment to the next, but it made for very entertaining television. My favorite example, which is, again, something I'd never seen before until I was screening stuff, is there was a, an interview with... I'm trying to remember her name. She was on Blossom. Maya Maya Bialik. Bialik, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And in the middle of the interview, for no reason whatsoever, he stands up, runs at the window, the the window that used to open out onto Queen Street, hurls himself against the window, crashes to the floor, 
gets up, gets up, dusts himself off, comes back, and continues the interview. Yeah, just nuts. I didn't do that. No, <laughs> no. He just seemed to be. He always seemed nuts. Like he always. I just didn't know where he was coming from. He was funny. Yeah. But I also just was like, it was a little unsettling watching Steve Anthony sometimes, but also arresting. Like I but, couldn't stop. It was yeah, compelling. It, it was compelling television. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think the desired effect was achieved. Yes. Now, uh, where I was coming from with some of this conversation is, was any of what John and Moses and you, and, and in this case, Steve Anthony, was any of this a reaction to what was going on elsewhere in media culture? Well, um, there really was no analog to what we were doing. I mean, this was the first 24-hour music channel in Canada. Yes, MTV in the yeah. U.S. preceded us by... By three years but we couldn't see it I, I mean I'd probably seen five minutes of MTV you know in a bar on a screen or yeah. something right in 1982 before you know doing what we did so we didn't compare ourselves to them and, and their type of TV was very different than ours it was you know each um, each day's uh, VJ throws would be written and slicker transcribed and yeah. they would you know, come in and run them down until they got them right. And then the VJs would all go away, and then the tapes would be sent to a studio facility, and then they'd insert the video. I mean, that's a whole different process. Right. And it's naturally, I think, going to feel a little canned. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't, we didn't really think about that. I mean, I suppose, actually, you know what? I'll just say one thing. Uh, this is just occurring to me, is that if there was an anti-fill-in-the-blank it was probably CBC. Right. Well, John... Martin. And part of that was, you know, that <laughs> Moses wanted nothing to do with CBC. Right. Because um, he'd been there earlier in his career. And I think... I mean, I don't know all the history of that part because that comes well before this story. But I think he'd felt kind of dissed by the folks at CBC. Moses was a... He was a recording engineer. He was a producer. He did... He, he ran a studio called Toronto Sound. Right, right. Um, but he'd also been... Involved, I think in this hour has seven days. Okay. Again, please check your references. <laughs> yeah, I'll look in the index of your book. Maybe well, it's in there know, somewhere. But even beyond that. Yeah. Um, so Moses' thing, he comes to one of the guys, one of the technical guys, Dennis Saunders, and says, Dennis, I don't want this to look anything like CBC. Right. Dennis looked at him and went, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and John also John Martin he had yeah. he did some time at CBC too and he felt yeah, spurned by them right like he he had worked on the Peter Zosky show that's that, right that late night show the talk show that he did a 90 minute 90 minutes live yeah yeah and uh, that's about how long it lasted mm-hmm. so yeah the, CBC has a weird history with late night television mm-hmm. programming for some reason it's not, it doesn't seem to be something that CBC they're early to bed viewers I guess that might be it. Really what it's about yeah. <laughs> so there was this okay so CBC was the other kid on the block. Literally, I mean, like I said at the top of this, you're only a few blocks apart. Yeah. The two buildings, really, at that point. But philosophically, <laughs> a yawning cavern of distance. <laughs> was it uh, was something going on in the culture that enabled two 24-hour music stations to suddenly emerge within a few years? MTV in the States, much music here. You were obviously... Moses had this vision. You're saying it had very little to do with what was happening at MTV, but it's obviously a sort of similar model, right? Oh, sure. The very fact that they had done it mm-hmm. and that it was an instant success uh, would have you know, turned the heat up here as far as trying to get uh, a music channel on air. Right. But things move more slowly here. And Moses, uh, when he talks about it in the book, you know, having to deal with the CRTC and... Um, what he refers to as the sort of sluggishness of the the process of getting anything approved. And one of his quotes, I believe, in your book is basically like they had to, the CRTC had to really see it succeed in America before they would even consider it as as something that could take place in Canada, right? Yeah. There was a lot of copycat stuff happening or let's see what they do before we... Canada has this, you know, I <laughs> complex to, where we wait, well, we, we wait and see. If uh, we, you know what? I think we used to, but yeah. not not so much now. I don't I don't feel that because uh, I, I remember like back in the day. Let's let's say the seventies before much started. I remember in the music business there was always, well, here's this new act, and they're Canada's answer to 
Sean Cassidy, you know, right. whatever, right. whatever. That's and and that to me was really, you know, contrary to real artist development and creative thinking but on it, any level. I, I think that happened and continues to happen all across the world, though. I suppose, a, but I think we're a lot more willing to take risks yeah. creatively now, and we're a lot readier to get behind people that make an original artistic statement in this country. I really believe that. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how this network, Much Music, was received in the early days by critics, because it was a bit of a mixed reaction, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of funny quotes from a guy in Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. I mean, he basically sort of, you know, put it right up there with devil worship in seemed, terms of how you spend your time. He seemed to be scrutinizing it from some religious perspective. Yes, he didn't understand. <laughs> but I, I was so glad that I had kept that uh, <laughs> that clipping because yeah. I got to use it. Oh, that's from your own archive. Yeah, <laughs> I had held on to that one. Well, I think what happened is for some reason they had asked me to respond to him back you? in the day. Why you? I don't know. Maybe because I was on air, so I was right. part of the face of the network, and they thought it would be appropriate if you yeah. know if I said, "Well, here's why we're doing what we're doing." Right. So I held on to his original clip. Yeah, I mean, you know, people quite rightfully looked upon it as, you know, a little loose in the early days. Sure. And and pretty uh, amateurish was, I think, how Larry LeBlanc referred to it. But. Um, you know, we were willing to take chances. It's closer to SCTV than anything else. Yeah, that that word amateurish is interesting to me, given the landscape we're in now in terms of media, where anyone with any phone or anything can just put something up on a computer yeah. and see it succeed. And people enjoy the rawness. People, yes, they do. The people seem to embrace the fact that it's being done lo-fi, so to speak. Yeah, um, well, we were a precursor to that, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it seemed... You know, I don't. I'm not here to overflatter you and the crew here, but <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's true though. Like there, there was stuff done on this television network that changed me personally. Like it changed my worldview. I'm, I'm sure of it. I, I didn't. I, as huh. I, I referenced this earlier. I kind of took it for granted. But even seeing Monica Diol as a young Indian boy growing up, you know, in the suburbs in a Canadian Southwestern Ontario suburb and just seeing Monica Diol on TV, an Indian, and sometimes she would wear traditional clothing. That was meaningful to me in a way that I, again, I probably was, it just probably went by me. I, to be honest, I was not a big electric circus fan. Yeah. I was more of a rock guy, <laughs> but, but you might've been a Monica fan. I, well, it wasn't even that I necessarily, um, I had my favorites. I mentioned Simon. You were among my favorite hosts. Thank you. And uh but it was more just the the and Sukyan Lee, like the, just the fact that it was a diverse mm-hmm. it didn't feel heavy handed. It just felt like someone somewhere decided this should reflect this country. Which is Well a, that's Moses. That is Moses. And I give yeah. him credit yeah. all the way down for that. I mean he did that with City as well. Yeah. He was very daring. He, he uh, it was an unpopular notion, but he almost saw himself as a casting agent. Yes, I, that's, yes. And uh, I, I thought that was brilliant. Because he, I mean, what seems completely self-evident now is he wanted to populate the screen with faces that were reflective of the community they were talking to. Yeah. And, and, and the people seemed real, like... The section on Erica M, I didn't notice this. I don't, I don't remember this, rather. I didn't realize that people criticized her on-air oh. abilities to the extent that they that you mentioned. In this it book. was staggering the amount. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Out of heat that girl took. And she was young and impressionable and vulnerable. Yeah. But she got tough. It's just, uh, I don't remember there being so much stammering and, and all that. Like, I mean, maybe that was just prior to when I started watching well, it. Well, she, she wasn't slick. Right. So she wasn't professional in the established way. But again, that's not what Moses wanted. She was... He wanted real. She's among the people we were alluding to earlier who was behind the scenes answering phones yeah. when people were like, who's that beautiful woman answering phones, right? <laughs> and then that kind of catapulted her to the air. That definitely helped. <laughs> but, you know, again, background-wise, I mean, she'd been a DJ yes. in Montreal. Yeah. and Yeah. She knew the culture. Yeah, she yeah. was part of the scene. Yeah, and I, and I think that... I never felt I can, that can't be true. I'm a journalist now. Much has certainly inspired me to take, for better or for worse. Frankly, at this point, with the mortgage and the kids and me just floundering about nowadays, I'm not sure it's entirely a good thing that I grew up <laughs> with much as a surrogate parent. But it did drive me into music journalism, and it drove me into real moments, reality, um, as opposed to something that's over overly mediated. And I think that's a huge. That was, a, that was a pioneering thing. I mean, I think that's what we gravitate more towards now in the way we consume culture. But you, I, I assume you guys didn't really realize what you were doing while it was happening, did you? No, there wasn't a lot of self-reflection going on. Right. There was just more doing. But when you look around, you'd look at, like, did you notice people copying much? Like, did you actually start to see other, like the CBC or someone trying to emulate that uh, no. That vibe? It, I think it was a while before that happened, and I was probably gone by then. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really see that. I, I saw that people were, you know, in the business either inspired or completely put off by it. Like some people considered it an affront to, the, to a responsible way of being a broadcaster. Right, right. You know? And we kind of went, yeah, so what, you know? Um, others just loved the chaos. The artists loved the chaos. Well, you've, you've, I, I thought it was interesting that you, the, the title of the book, Is This Live?, from what I can gather, it's a, a quote that can be attributed to LaToya Jackson, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. But it also, to be fair, it, w it was one of those things that we heard a lot. Like people would come in, let's say they were on a tour or maybe, you know, somebody from the sales department was, was bringing them down to show them the station because there was always like big buzz to be able to come in while we were doing the, yeah, yeah. the, the, the program. And they'd see this chaos and they'd see somebody on air seemingly talking to a either the camera operator or maybe they were on air and they they <laughs> invariably go is this live <laughs> because they think well of course when it's live everybody's going to quiet down the phones will be muted and, yeah. and you'll hear somebody going four three <laughs> but you didn't as you know well there's many there's a myriad examples in the book of of artists saying i've never had an interview like this one um, they didn't, the, 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 and I think like when much started, it should be told that people, musicians weren't used to doing interviews, right? They weren't used to being on TV and, you know, presenting true. themselves before you guys started yeah, going true. to people's hotel rooms or they'd wander into the studio and you had bands like Bon Jovi who were just like, this is amazing. Like, we love you guys. Yeah. And like that, you, you established a real rapport with the artists because of the chaos, I think a little bit. Well, you know, I mean, artists are used to, like, backstage madness, and they're used to interacting with, you know, fans who are really excited and pumped, and they're jumping, and yeah. they're yelling, yeah. and and um, even in studios, there's always so much going on, and it's a, it's a noisy business making music. So for them, this was kind of of the flavor of what they did and what they knew and were already comfortable with. Right. Whereas when they had to go into a studio setting where it was absolute pin drop silence and, you know, the interviewer would be, you know, all very precious about what they're doing. So tell us about the direction right. for the new album. <laughs> you know, it's like, that is weird. Yeah, that's weird. What than we what, did was right. kind of like normal, the I think. The casual, it was very casual and yeah. there were mistakes. But... They hadn't seen it in other places. Right. That was the, the extraordinary part. Right. John Martin passed away in 2006. Uh, I, I, did, I wasn't really familiar with him. As mm. someone who grew up, you know, as I, I think I've mentioned a few times now, this, 
this era of much music that you've documented in your book and and beyond it even really meant a lot to me as a kid. That's great. Thank you. Well, no, it I honestly, I mean it it did and it does to lots of people. You don't know this. There's no way you could know this, of course, and I'm going to tell you a little story real quick. <laughs> because I and I want to get into this because I think for a lot of people much and MTV obviously changed directions at some point well after you had left much but i actually had the weird experience a couple years ago two three years ago now of being asked to audition for much so i was brought in to an audition at, at 299 queen street and it was weird they were trying to do uh like a the audition was strange i had to pretend i was on a game show and come up with jokes on the fly and it went i thought it went terribly because i'd never auditioned for anything before and they the lead person loved me she said that was great we, i want to have you back in the new year so she brought me back scheduled me to come back for a second audition and, and do some more camera stuff i walk in and she's gone like her desk is dark her her office is dark and i'm like where's uh where's uh, you know so and so they're like oh she's 17 years here and she's gone they they got rid of her mm-hmm. and 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 meanwhile, what happened like a few months later is Bell got rid of everybody. Like the much sort of seemed to be destroyed. But among the things I learned in those auditions is we really want to get this back to what it was. We want to bring much back to the, the level of relevance it was when you were growing up. Mm. They didn't even know much about me, I don't think. I don't think they knew my history as a fan of the of the network. There does seem to be this perception among people, maybe they're, maybe they're not there anymore, of what went wrong, what happened to much uh, in particular. I don't think there, like, like you say, we didn't have MTV up here until relatively recently, but much had a very unique flavor. And for some of us, it's not there anymore. I mean, I outgrew it probably. I don't flip on much anymore. And when I do, it's just TV shows from the States. Let me ask you this. Yeah. If it was in many ways similar now to what it once was, would you tune in? No, I'm 38. See, there you go. Yeah. I think that sort of proves the whole thing. That right. It's like everything has to change. Right. You can't stay the same. If you stayed... I, I look upon our days as being the adolescence of music television in this country. And who wants a perpetual adolescent? If you don't grow up at some point, it the act gets old. That's fair. And I think... Um, as they grew in size, I mean, they had to be responsible to sponsors yeah. and... And and then inevitably there's, you know, with the arrival of the internet, a whole world of competition for eyeballs. So they had to be thinking about different ways sure. to present this in order to maintain viewership and, and, and keep the sponsors happy. Um, if I'd been the boss of the thing, I don't know what I would have done differently. Really? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, I also left, once I left much on air, I also left the country. So I didn't really see it. Right. So I can't say that I bore witness to those changes that you're actually talking about. But people ask me about that a lot. Um, I think for some of us, it was a shock of, I'm going to go to university or somewhere for four years. Yeah. When I come back, much should still be there, right? It'll be there when I come back. <laughs> like like your bedroom still at home should be <laughs> yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I would I remember distinctly being in third or fourth year of university and flipping i was the king flipper at the house with my roommates they were astonished by my ability to never watch a commercial i could just go to yeah find alternate programming i'm with you yeah but much i noticed it was different and i probably wasn't i probably didn't even care at the time but i did do remember noticing it and i just it fell out of favor um but so did music videos so did a lot of stuff so did the music industry on some level it kind of just well remember with music videos too um you know people were now able to watch them on youtube uh, on demand and on demand viewing changed everything in some ways yeah because who's going to sit in front of the tv and you know wait for the new adele video when you can just go to youtube and watch it right now when you want to that's true but then you had specialty programming like intimate and interactive right or, which was totally unique, and and even yeah, the those are fantastic, and the they? and the genre shows were at yeah. the time were really I loved the Wedge and I loved Rap City and I mm-hmm. I would watch the Coca Cola Countdown even at that point you yeah, know I'd watch sure. it all and Dan Gallagher was this huge presence and yeah yeah kind of a ridiculous guy and so they all it all just seeped into me and uh, from what I gather 
there was a shift in mentality when John Martin was sort of let go, right? Mm-hmm. So something shifted. Denise Donlin took over. Yeah, I mean, him. I think Denise probably had a different mandate. Right. I mean, you got to f- remember, too, I mean, John, for all his brilliance, was across the street in the bar. Yeah, he wouldn't come to the office. No, I mean, if you could... wanted a meeting with John, you had to go over to... I can't remember. Was it called Friars? The, the Friar? Yeah, yeah. The Friar. Yeah, and that was because he would smoke. What was it? He just he could he wasn't allowed to smoke in the office. Well, anymore. I don't think they encouraged <laughs> beer drinking in the office either. But he was um, a he was an eccentric guy on some yeah. level to be in. A, I mean, arguably yeah. he got it done. Mm-hmm. He he initiated some amazing things, but I'm sure they wanted a change of culture. When did he leave? Oh gosh, like in the nineties or was it? Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking. Like 94? 94. And when did you leave? But that's a guess. Right. Yeah. I, I left at the end of 89. Oh, yeah. You left early. Yeah. 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 Huh. Okay. So you don't... You see the change in the station as just evolutionary. Something it had to do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. There's no... <laughs> like I say, I think it's odd that we are at a point where some of the stuff we used to see on Much, anyone is doing now. Yeah, maybe that's part of the deal. It's just that maybe maybe somehow people are just making their own stuff the way it seemed like much was just making its own stuff. Well, they I don't know if you look know now, but they have a thing called YouTube creators. Yes, they do. Yeah, and maybe that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, they're just get they're they're and they're that's. Do you follow that? And they're right, you know, right across the sort of pop culture spectrum too. I mean, they're yeah. talking about you know fashion and all sorts of stuff. Right. Okay. So. As the music industry has changed and struggled, I think networks like Much and MTV have probably just done the same. And I mean, I think for when you turn on Much now, have you turned on Much lately? No, I I I, I live in the U.S., so right. I I mean, I go to the, the website, right? See so what's going on. If you flip it on now, and I will go to it still, I think because it's muscle memory <laughs> from thirty years of flipping remote uh, controls. But I go to it, and it's. <laughs> Not stuff I dislike, like it's fun to watch Broad City and it's fun to watch Conan or whatever there, mm. but it does seem like the focus on music, like maybe it speaks to what you're saying about on-demand culture, like people just don't look too much as a music station anymore. I mean, they took music out of their name for crying out loud. That's sort of a strange move. Yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> like music has, uh, its its value has just diminished so much. I don't mean to say much. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. The value of music has diminished so much that people don't, like, the, it seems like the station doesn't, it can't really invest that much energy into music anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not here <laughs> to to watch it or participate in right. it. Right. I have to tell you, if I could just take one little tangent, they did something brilliant for me. They created a hub on that Much website. Yeah called is this live same as the book title right and they i helped them curate it so there's like 50 moments that tie into the stories in the book so you can actually see oh wow the visual oh cool of what happened and i i was kind of blown away when they wanted to do that i mean that's you know a nice way of honoring the foundations of the of the network but still it was really cool it's like i'm saying i think when i was there for those auditions there there are people there who remember much as this vibrant thing and and they're aware of their import like they're aware of the network's import to people like me or uh, generations of yeah. people so i don't think they're a historical and and i don't expect them to like you say like they had to change but on some level, like your book is filling a bit of a vacuum. Like this is a, a history lesson for. I assume you view this as for people probably my age, but for others too, right? Like you're hoping younger people. Like I didn't know anything about much music until I read this book. I mean, that's probably what you're hoping for. You know, honestly, Vish, I never thought about it. Really, um, I'm not that premeditated in what I do creatively. I, I try always just to follow my instincts and do what feels like the right thing at the right time, whether it's re- writing music or, in this case, obviously a longer project. Um, but I didn't go, well, gee, I wonder what the uh, you know the demographic breakdown is for this book before I start, sure. because that, in, invariably that type of thinking influences what you're doing in a in a confining way. I just knew that there was a bunch of great stories that needed to be told mm-hmm. and recollected. 
And then the more that I dug into it and the more time I spent in the archives and the more time I spent talking to people, it just the story just grew richer and richer. And I confined myself to, you know, loosely the first decade because that's the part that I took yeah, part sure. in and remember the best. Right, right. So, I mean, if I tried to go too far beyond that, I think I would have been, you know, out of my league. Do you think it would be useful for them to do more work like they've done in this hub they've given you in terms of, like, going into their archives? And I know when, uh, during the last uh, Tragically Hip tour, or I think it might have been the last couple of shows or something, they did, like, a hip marathon, mm. and they just played, they just were like, here's here's pretty much everything. Here's all the interviews we have. Oh, really? Here's all the videos. Oh, and that then, must have been cool. Yeah, they just spent a day, I saw bits of it, and they just... They spent a day doing that. But how fantastic that they have all that stuff, that, that they can lay their What's hands it, on it. What is it on? Is it on beta tape? What's, is it going to... A lot of it, yeah. 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 So I that, mean, I think they're probably digitizing are they? Okay. certain aspects of the library. But, um, well, it's funny because one of the people that I worked with on the Hub thing said, you know, we're really inspired to, to want to do more with oh, the good. archives. Okay. So may, maybe they will. Yeah. I think it needs to happen. I mean, when I read your book, that's interesting you say that. I didn't know about this Hub because I do want to watch... Every moment that you're talking yeah, about here. Yeah, check it out. I'd be curious to know what you think. <laughs> no, it's got to be an amazing, that's an amazing interactive feature. And, and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's an astounding book. And I'm, I'm, it, it makes me a little emotional, frankly, for my, wow, thank for my you. youth and for the, for the culture on some level. Because it was a more innocent time, wasn't it? You still have your youth. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I know. I I don't feel old. I I don't. No, it didn't make me feel old. It, it inspired me. It actually inspired me to. I know I was lamenting the career trajectory I've taken, but I think that you just kind of make your way in this world and you figure stuff out, and that seems to be what much was all about at this time. Just like we're just going to try a thing, and <laughs> hopefully they let us do it forever. I think you're right. And I, I did the same with writing a book about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see what happens with this. And you're happy? You're, you feel? I'm really delighted. Yeah. I mean, you know, working with the people at Random House, they're an amazing group of people. They really pay so much attention to detail here, and they make you feel awfully good about what you're doing. And, and the design elements in that yeah, book. Yeah, it's cool. They really made it look great. There's a, as you probably, I'm sure you know this is from your journalism uh with your journalism background, sometimes you'll be having a nice conversation with someone and they'll be very forthcoming and then you'll put the things they said themselves into print and they start to bristle. They start, they, they begin to be like, oh, I didn't, I wish I hadn't said that or they get regretful. Have you had any blowback about the book or are people mostly, the people you've contacted been like, this is great? It's early days. Yeah. There's, there's time for blowback. <laughs> I may get some. Yeah. Uh, I'll report it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, the people that uh, I'm closest with are the ones that have first had a chance to look at it, and across the board, they have been, well, essentially grateful. They're saying, thanks for telling the story. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's thrilling for me. That's what I wanted to hear. That's, what, the, that's the first wave of response right. that ultimately you want on something is your, your friends and associates. Right. Was there any particular thing that surprised you? in your research for this book, like something that became, that came uncovered that you're like, Whoa, I had no idea. I think you've alluded to a couple of things, but was there how so much there was really, I, I thought that, you know, I'd sort of heard rumors that all the tapes had been moved off site. Oh, and, the archives. Oh, yeah. I, see. I thought, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm only going to get like bits and pieces of, of what we did. I would say like 95% of what I was looking for was there. And available for screening, and I mean, it it, it was a weird thing because some sometimes I'd look at it and I think this is so fresh, this could be happening today. Yeah, and then I'd go, wait a minute, that's twenty five or thirty years ago. There wasn't an internet. <laughs> you don't see everyone at their desk staring into their phones. Right, you know? right. It truly was a different era. Right. Uh, and that that strikes you when you look back at stuff. Yeah, it, it was a healthy mix of irreverence and silliness and and total respect. I think for the artists. Hopefully, yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. I think I think it was like that's what came it came across to me, and it's the way I try to engage interviews as well is is to get people comfortable and get some real, you know content out of them you know get something interesting out of them mm -hmm. but also i hope you got something interesting here today. i hope so too i think i did so far <laughs> i'm feeling that i but it, that's all i'm saying is 
the book is educational, but I think the experience for me was educational as well as a viewer. So, well, it's funny. My agent that told me this when the book came out, he said, "You know that they're they're going to be studying this book for years." And I thought, "Oh God, no, they will." I you think know, this it'll be could... in libraries, it'll be in schools. <laughs> I, I mean, I, clearly, I did not have that intention. I might have edited myself a little more severely, but it's probably good that I didn't think about that. Because if you take yourself too seriously, you kind of shoot yourself sure. in the foot creatively. Sure, and I think that's part of much, is that it didn't take itself that seriously, yeah. but was doing, I think, really important work. Again, I, I appreciate the fact that you didn't know you were doing it. All of you. You were just like, we were just doing a thing. I just have, I know like Erica M's, one of her telling quotes was, once I was done, I was just done. I left. I didn't think about it again. And now, you know, you you both get recognized for very incidental things. You get recognized for the fromage. There's stuff that you probably like, <laughs> well, I'm done. I did that so long ago. No one's going to remember it. Yeah. But she says she still gets nice uh, seats in restaurants for uh, whatever. And Laurie gets free cab rides from, that's right. from the Power Hour viewers. <laughs> that's right. You got to love that, It's right? amazing. I mean, it had resonance. And, I, and that's it. I, I, I appreciate that this book exists. I appreciated that the network existed, so I, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you did this. I'm, I'm very Thank happy. You. Yeah, I, I, I wanted it to have the feeling of what it was like to watch. Yeah, it does have that. Back in the day, it does have that. Yeah. What's next for you? What are you working on beyond this uh, promoting this book? Well, I mean, songwriting work. I've got a couple of other book ideas. There's a work of uh, teen fiction that I'm about two thirds of the way through. Okay. So, you know, really, for me, it's just staying creative, trying to find projects and things that I want to do was um, it scary? that I haven't done before. Was it scary when you left much? No, because I left at a time when my career had just taken off. I mean, Black Velvet was breaking right, right when I left much. It was clearly it was the impetus for me to be able to, to go on and, and into a new chapter in my life and career. So right. it was a fantastic time. But you went from being a prominent personality on some level on much like you were a guy on in front of the camera mm-hmm. to writing songs in the sort of in the background you were having a lot of success but was that strange for you like no uh, it was great you, you appreciated it oh that was fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and you've written songs for so alana miles do you still write for alana at all is she working? i haven't no okay. um she's been kind of quiet recording wise lately but right. um yeah, I've had my songs recorded by the Backstreet Boys and Hilary Duff and Diana Ross. Right. And lots of Canadian acts. I had had cuts with um, Colin James and uh, Rock Voisine right. and Anne Murray. And, and yeah. a little bit of comedy acting. I mean, you were in Austin Powers. Well, kind of, but only because <laughs> only because Mike wanted his friends in there. You were in the band. I was in the band. Yeah, Ming T is that the name of the Ming T baby? Ming yeah, T. you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. You've got this forward by Mike Myers, which yeah. is nice, and and I think it's hilarious that you both have competing books out right now. I know, isn't that amazing? Who could have foreseen that they would come out within I think like four or five days of each other? Are you still tight with Mike? Yeah, we're friends. Yeah, yeah. So he's doing well. Everything's fine. He's great. He's yeah. like a happy family man now. He's got three kids. And, yeah. And I love his book. It's really funny. I just it's got sweet. a copy. Yeah. You know, it, his ability to recall detail is mind-boggling to me. Hmm. I needed a whole lot of help to get the amount of detail I did in that book. And he just spun some gold there from his own childhood memories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's good at that. He's, he's, he's I think really good. Most of I, I feel like a lot of his more popular characters stem from things he came up with when he was younger right or his parents or yes. you know growing up scottish or or english i should, yeah. should say it's it's uh yeah anyway he's a totally interesting guy i have a copy of his book i'm going to read it soon anyway i'm glad you're doing this i'm glad you're having fun if people want to learn more about christopher ward where should they go on the internet oh well um if they're curious about stuff related to the book there's a Facebook page and also all the various other things um, called Much Memories. Okay. And there's lots of photos, even some things that aren't in the book. And that's really fun to go to. Okay. But I have my own website, ChristopherWard.ca. Okay. And that's where we can keep up with that's the songs me. and the books and yeah. and appearances and all that. Christopher, this was uh, an honor. Thank you for Fish, being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank and you so much. Best of luck with this book and everything going forward. Appreciate it. Oh, we should go out on a song. Should we go out on like Black Velvet or something? Why not? Can we do it? I think we can do it. You, 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 can I have your permission to play Black Velvet? Will, like, will we get in trouble? I kind of want to play Black you Velvet. You have more than my permission. You have my blessing. 
All right, this is Black Velvet by Alana Maz, written by Christopher Ward. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Vish. Self-titled debut record, which came out in 1989, that was Atlanta Miles 
with Black Velvet, which was written by Christopher Ward, my guest on the show. Thank you, Christopher, for being on the program and talking about much music. Those were important days in my life, spending a lot of time, maybe too much time, watching much music in my parents' living room. Hey, by the way, I'd like to dedicate uh, uh, Black Velvet to my friend, my childhood friend, Dallas Worley. Uh, Dallas was a big fan of that song, as I recall. Maybe it maybe led him to the bass. It has a very distinctive bass line. I don't know. Anyway, there you go. That's for Dallas. Hey, this is the 296th episode of Creative Control with Vish Khanna, and uh, you can learn more about it at my website, vishkhanna.com. But you can also just go to iTunes and subscribe to it, review it, rate it, tell your friends about it. Uh, that helps the show a lot, actually. You can also listen to it via audioboom.com. And if you go to my website, vishkana.com, you can uh, click on a link there and head to our Patreon page where you can make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast going. We're on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Vish Creative. And you can listen to this show every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time from around the world via CFRU.ca. Or if you're in the region, at CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. This podcast would not be possible without some key sponsorships, namely the Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, movie theater, and restaurant located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. For more information about them, visit bookshelf.ca. Also, the finest pizzeria in Guelph, Pizza Trocadero, who are located at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph. Visit them at trocaderoguelph.ca for their uh, menu and other information, or call them at 519 519- 829-2444 for pickup or delivery in Guelph and also Planet B in the best coffee in Guelph. Independently owned, conscientious, fair trade coffee. Go to planetbeancoffee.com to figure out how to get to one of their three amazing locations. I like the Planet Bean people. All right, that's uh, all I have to say for now. Uh, we'll be back, I hope, with one more episode before I take a Christmas break, holiday break. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's it. So that's it. I'm going to go. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.